Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Challoner and you join us on another sunny day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. We'll be joined a little later on on the show today by former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss, but first and foremost I'm delighted to have Mark Dunn alongside me. Mark is the Managing Director of Purity Productions, an experiential marketing agency based in London. Mark, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for joining us. Hi, no, thanks for the opportunity to uh, yeah, speak, speak a bit to you because it's our pleasure having you with us, uh, Mark, for sure. Um, the reason we're here, of course, is to discuss leadership and really bring that into focus. And considering that today's generation of business leaders is going through one of the greatest challenges of our time, I think it's fair to mm. say. I feel it would be remiss of me not to ask you just how that COVID-19 pandemic has affected you and your operations. Okay, well, experiential marketing is uh, it's all about face-to-face interaction, mm. um, so human contact. Um, at the beginning of this year, we came into the year off on the back of a, a very successful year last year, um, full of confidence in January, uh, going into February, and uh, lots of lots of plans in taking um, new member into the team in January, all ready for a, a busy year. And we had a, um, a pretty full order book come March. Then, as you all know, that uh, come end of March, it's... Uh, once lockdown happened um, and all events and everything else, um, you know, all human to human contact pretty much ceased. So did uh, all our campaigns and projects um, for the next six months uh, were all um, cancelled, postponed, um, you know, to a value of well over sort of seven figures, um, which happened in the space of sort of two to three weeks. So in reality, you know, our world was literally turned upside down um, very quickly. And, um, you know, since then, we've been having to, um, from that point, react um, as positively as we can um, to ensure the the safety and security and future of our, our business, really. And what do you think the long-term effect will be on your industry as a result of this? Because there's been a lot of talk about how working practices and our way of living may fundamentally change as a result of this. Well, the events and experiential um, industry is is going to be one of the last to reopen, really. And I think some of the hardest things we've been finding recently are as industry reopens, um, even travel, hospitality, to a certain extent, uh, events aren't due to come online till October. Even then, we'll be socially distanced, um, less people. Um, so as long as COVID is around, uh, large groups of gathering of people is probably not going to be something that's seen until uh, next year, until either a vaccine's in circulation or the pandemic is well and truly under control. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's meant quite a lot of long-term um, strategizing in terms of how how we get to that point as a, as a company and as a business and, and keep going really. And in terms of managing through the uh, the pandemic from a leadership perspective, just how has it been mentally? Because I can imagine it's not been just mentally taxing for yourself, but also there's been a lot of consideration of the mental health and well-being of those around you in the equation as well. Yeah, I mean, there's two things in our industry. We have our staff in the office 
um, that plan and manage all the campaigns. And then we have a promotional staffing division with uh, over 500 staff on zero-hour contracts um, who, you know, are, are paid for the live events that they work on. And obviously, they all their work has also dried up. So, you know, the furlough scheme to us was the first thing we immediately um, jumped on. And, uh, you know, some of the, the team in the office um, who we have a very sort of transparent and open way of working with. So they all fully understand and understood the situation then and, and still do with the business. Uh, we don't hide things from, from, the, from the team in the office. And, you know, most of them are now on furlough. Um, so that scheme's worked very well for us. I think ideally it would be great if for the events industry it could go on to the next country because, as I've said, I don't think the events industry will be proper, properly up and running until next March at the earliest. If furlough could extend, that would be much appreciated if Rishi Sunak was listening. Uh, and then, yeah, the promotional staff, um, you know, we've furloughed um, our most regular staff um, as well for the five months up until, well, four or five months up until the August um, when we obviously we had to pay the NIM pension. But again, with them, it was about, you know, regular communication, um, thanking them for all their work and just trying to, trying to help them as much as we can um, because we all want to work together again in, in the future. Of course, um, that's uh, completely understandable. And there have been a great many concerns about when the furlough scheme winds down in October as to the impact that that's going to have on employment for sure. So that's going to be a very interesting uh, time of uh, year to see uh, what comes of that. With regards to um, your sort of capacity as the leader in um, your uh, business, Sir Mark, I suppose that you are the person who sort of shoulders all of the responsibility of keeping people informed, reassured and sort of inspired and motivated during a crisis such as this. Um, Naturally, people look up to their leaders for inspiration and direction as and when they need it. But when you're the one at the top of the tree and there's nobody really above you to refer to, where is it that you look to for inspiration as and when you need it? Um. Very fortunate. I've got a uh, a very good business partner, um, and who isn't necessarily in the business day to day, but that I can at least call up, bounce off ideas. Um, I've got a really supportive accountancy firm, um, Porters on Board, who who are just really helpful and guided me through everything from the fee bills application. Um, you know, we've got the coronavirus business interruption loan uh, on board now as well, so that's really helped. And I think it's just having this small team of, of people that I've worked with for years and, and trust um, that, you know, I can talk to regularly. And, and also other um, heads of other businesses um, within my field, you know, we've even had games of golf where, you know, we can bounce a, a few ideas and how they're doing, how we're doing off each other. Um, and, you know, try and keep our mental health uh, in a good place as well. Um, as our team, because that's important as a leader is to, you know, stay calm, um, stay calm and carry on. And, you know, that, that takes a um, quite something at times of high stress as well. Just how easy when you finished a hectic working day managing something as difficult as this, do you find it to just sort of switch off when you need to? Um, I wouldn't necessarily say switch off as, um, you know, it is something that you... you yeah, certainly the last few months it has been very hard to, to switch off but you've got to almost relish the challenge of um, you know getting through this and you know a lot of people are in worse situations than than ourselves um, across the world and you know for us as a business that it was about okay we're in this in this situation how best do we navigate 
us through it. Let's take up this challenge. How do we change the business model slightly? Um, you know, that common word everyone's using of pivot. We've certainly implemented um, new new things that we're working on, like we're currently developing a whole mm. virtual experience and going down the digital route has been big for us. Um, so we're actually really excited by quite a lot of the stuff we're working on now is not our typical, or not what we were doing a year ago. Um, but having said that, in the future when we've got, you know, when we're armed with what we used to do plus what we're now doing um, in the time of virtual experiences, I think next year we'll come out of it even stronger. So, you know, it's, it's been a case of, okay, if we're in this situation, what can we do to, to deal with it? Um, and I think we've made a lot of good decisions as a business and um, we should be coming out of this in quite a strong position, I believe. So considering that it's been quite a difficult and a very sensitive time and you've, it seems that there are some real positives to take on the innovation mm. side of things for sure. Yeah, and certainly, you know, you, as a business, it's been maybe a time to almost sit back and, and both with the team as well as, if you like, a leader to, to see how everyone's doing, where the company's going, talk to people where they want to go, um, you know, and as a business, where do we want to be in 12 months? Where do we want to be in three years? You know, even working with the bank on the coronavirus loan, you know, doing cash flows that are 12 months ahead. So, you know, we effectively know where we're going to be, even with no business in 12 months. You know, it's been quite a, a eye-opener and just a really good process to put in place. And there's lots of those processes that I think myself and the team have now been working on, you know, to uh, make sure we do come out of it and everyone is focused on that on that comeback. You know, we're, we're very lucky. All our clients have stayed very loyal and um, everything else. And they're all, all, most of our projects are postponed to next year rather than cancelled. So, you know, I think we'll come out of it in, in, a, in, a, in a positive way. And I think the team's bought into that. Um, so I think they're all motivated to get through to the other side of this and, and then come out stronger. So let's talk about that next 12 to 18 months before we do just wrap things up on the uh, the programme. We know that over that period of time, we're going to have to adjust to a new way of living and a new way of working until we can finally shrug off the coronavirus um, pandemic with a cure or a vaccine. But where exactly do you want the business to be in 12 to 18 months' time? What are you really hoping to achieve? Well, you know, for example, we actually are moving out of our office tomorrow, um, which is a big thing. We've been in the office for around 10 years. Um, we're closing that office down because it was on a three-month tenancy notice and, um, you know, it was just far too large. We'd been thinking about it for a while. We're now going into a uh, co-shared membership-type environment, which is just really dynamic. We can just use that for one day a week while we, you know, mix up. I think the home working for us has gone really well. We don't necessarily need to all be in office all day every day. You know, so I think all, all the team are really excited by that. They're off on events as well. Um, so, you know, I've got real high hopes that that energy that the team have shown with the office move and taking the positives of everyone saying it's a new beginning for us, you know. And so, you know, that's why I think 12 to 18 months we will be in a really good position because myself and the team really believe this is actually going to maybe be the making of us, which would be quite something considering where we were in March. Let's certainly hope there'll be some positive news to share on the horizon um, as well, uh, Mark, as soon as we start to see some of these plans hopefully coming to fruition. Yeah, and I no, think, we have um, good, good green roots. So, uh, yeah, it's um, starting to look, look good. 
And as we start to see the green shoots coming up um, in the uh, the weeks and months to come, I actually think it would be wonderful to catch up and have you back on the show with us just to see exactly how things are getting on. And at that point, we'll also be in a better position to just reassess how the recovery is going and how the whole pandemic's playing out. Yeah, no, I'd love to, because I think, you know, things will change in, in my industry over the next few months. And um, yeah, it should be, should be a, an interesting and hopefully exciting time. Interesting and innovative times indeed, Mark. I have to say, um, it's been a real, real pleasure having you join as a real breath of fresh air. And most importantly as well, do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on. Will do. You too. I was speaking today to uh, Mark Dunn, Managing Director of Purity Productions. Um, For all those tuning in today as well, do continue to look after yourselves and others because it does make a real difference in saving lives. Um, Next up on the programme, we'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. Um, During his professional cricket career, Sir Andrew joined an illustrious club of just three England captains to have secured the Ashes, both at home and away in Australia. He also racked up the second highest number of test victories for an England skipper in history. Since retiring, he's not only been a champion of mental health, but he's also been appointed the director of cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. I hope you all enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Sir Andrew. And all of that is, of course, coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at, the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And... Um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, Vaughan got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost I'd been I was a Middlesex player I was Mm. captain of Middlesex all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever and then a week later I've scored a test century which is something I'd always dreamed out literally all my life and then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test I mean it was literally the dream so and then suddenly I started thinking wow hold on potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails so 
it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important, I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role. You know, and just in terms of... Because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international cricket. And in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know... uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and and, and you've got (laughs) other places to be, so (laughs) we can't do that, but... If I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th- the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. Quite. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in 
in seeing England win at something, we're all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, you know, because there's, there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance, and it put a whole new generation, especially of children, school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for Absolutely. Everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well in a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, you privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You know, I, I remember when I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, 
But th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And you know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and w- with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but. What advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading a team? I think so, Okay, uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was... We had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on home soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on the sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so, I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... In fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so... You know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what did the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was. I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it very different 
challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground, right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves, mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know you, but when watching that World Cup final again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of. Uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I. Yeah. Actually, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become. An inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed. Ruth was someone that was always well. You'd never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top ten cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare; it's probably a misnomer. But it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help. Uh, Cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively 
how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be. Yeah. So the, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about. Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing red. Wearing red. So what, what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> like, anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely. You know, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though, I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um 
you know, we're going to have our own uh, short form tournament that will rival the Big Bash, and we'll be moving towards the IPL. And those are you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I i I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well surely it's gonna be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.